0: The Lord is risen. Hallelujah. Well, it's good to be with you today, and uh, I want to, to thank Melissa and Jose for reading scripture so beautifully for us today. One of the uh, most unfortunate things about modern theology is how spectacularly unimaginative it can be. It is a perverse miracle of sorts. Where Jesus turned water into wine, modern biblical scholars and theologians often transform the most sumptuous red wine into water that wouldn't quench the thirst of someone stranded in the Atacama Desert. There are parts of the Atacama Desert that have not seen rain in more than 500 years, but I digress. The ability of modern biblical scholars and theologians to take the most tantalizing topics and render them utterly mundane really is extraordinary. More than mundane, modern theology and biblical scholarship often transform the theological agenda into a mere historical one. Consider Jesus' resurrection. What they want to know is whether it happened. They want to know what evidence there is in the historical record. They get dragged into endless debates about what counts as evidence. What is the value of eyewitness testimony? Are the witnesses reliable? How can we be sure? The irony of confining our discourse about the resurrection to historical inquiry should not be lost. The whole point of the doctrine of the resurrection is that Jesus Christ is not confined to the past. The resurrection means that Jesus is alive today, that he is as alive now as he was then. Not only that, he awaits us in the future. He is himself the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. Jesus is our destiny. Confining our thinking about the resurrection to the question, did it happen, can be spiritually devastating. We can wind up stuck in an agnostic vortex of skepticism and doubt stuck, as it were, in the first century. Happily, biblical scholars and theologians are beginning to ask new questions. They are beginning to contemplate Christ's resurrection in new ways. The most notable development on this front is the recent emphasis on the bodily nature of Christ's resurrection. The focus on Christ's resurrected body has become the ground for affirming the goodness of our bodies, the care of our bodies, and resistance to any and all forms of bodily abuse. This is surely a step in the right direction. We're beginning to move beyond the question, did it happen? We're beginning to ask more tantalizing questions. What does Christ's resurrection mean for how we live now? What does it portend for the future? What is Christ's body for? I want to explore these questions a bit more this morning. But before I do, let me assure you that I believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ as a historical event for me the answer to the question did it happen is yes it did see how easy that is (laughs) but what does it mean for how we live what does Christ's bodily resurrection portend for the future what is christ's resurrected body for For those of a skeptical turn of mind, the resurrection is just plain weird. We know death. And we know that when people die, they tend to stay dead. Christian claims that Jesus was raised from the dead directly violate what we otherwise know to be the case. And I think we have to grant this to the skeptics. The resurrection is just weird. Now having acknowledged this, I want to make things weirder. We believe in Christ's bodily resurrection. Once we affirm this, the next thing that many of us like to do is speculate about the nature of Christ's resurrected body. We note that following His resurrection, Jesus can appear suddenly. He seems to walk through walls but he is also capable of eating and drinking. His body is recognizable, but it is also clearly different. Already, things are getting weirder. But they are not nearly weird enough, at least not for me. The truly weird thing about Christ's resurrected body is that it accommodates us. There is a delightful multiplicity of meaning when we speak of Christ's body, or the body of Christ. First, there is the body, his body, that was beaten, brutalized, and buried. Second, there is the body that was raised, still bearing the wounds of the crucifixion. Third, there is the body of Christ that includes all of us. Fourth, There is the body of Christ that we consume in Holy Communion. In this morning's epistle reading from Ephesians, St. Paul identifies the church as Christ's body. He declares that Christ is the head over the church, which is his body. There are several other places in the Pauline epistles where Paul speaks of the church as the body of Christ. For instance, in 1 Corinthians 12, 27, the Apostle declares, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Those among us who insist on the literal interpretation of Scripture are beginning to squirm in their pews. Surely, Paul doesn't mean that we are literally Christ's body. Surely, this is some kind of metaphor. And surely, this... Isn't literally Christ's body and blood. Surely it is just some kind of symbol, a memorial of something that happened in the past. Friends, Christ's body is truly weird. It is unlike any other body with which we are familiar. It is physical and locatable. His body, his body rather than my body or your body, his pierced hands and feet the blood flowing from his side but it is also a mysterious spiritual body into which we are being incorporated by the Holy Spirit through baptism after we receive his body and blood in Holy Communion we are told to be Christ's body and blood for the sake of the world on the one hand there is real differentiation Christ has his own body. On the other hand, there is real union. We are the body of Christ, united to him and to one another by the Holy Spirit in baptism and Holy Communion. St. Augustine captures this two-fold nature of Christ's body elegantly when he talks about the totus Christus. The totus Christus is the whole body of Christ, which includes all of us. We have been joined to Christ by the Holy Spirit, and our union with him and one another in him is real. At the same time, our union with him and with one another is a different kind of union than the union between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, or even the union between Christ's divine and human nature's. We have just reached a new level of weirdness and Dr. Legrone is thinking this is why we don't let the systematic theologians preach. (laughs) But I want you to notice something. I want you to notice how far we are from the question, did it happen? We are now thinking about Christ's resurrected body in a radically different way we're asking radically different questions. Just now, we've been raising and answering the question, what is Christ's body? We've seen that there is more than one answer to this question. Most importantly, we've seen that Christ's body includes us. We are joined to him by the Holy Spirit through our partaking in the divine mysteries, most notably baptism and Eucharist. We are Christus. Christ is our head, and we are his body. What about the other two questions I mentioned earlier? What is this body for, and what does it pretend about the future? The gospel reading this morning contains important clues concerning the purpose of Christ's body. In that glorious passage from St. John, the Lord instructs us, To abide in him he also instructs us to love one another how do we do this how do we abide in Christ so that we will not be like the branches that are pruned away and how do we love one another The short answer to this question is that the same Holy Spirit who unites us to Christ in baptism is present and at work when we receive Christ's body and blood in Holy Communion. We abide in Christ and we learn to love one another by faithfully and humbly receiving these gifts. I could say so much more here, but in the interest of time I need to move on to the last question. What does Christ's bodily resurrection pretend about the future? I've saved this question to the end because answering it takes the weird factor to the ultimate level. Just when you thought things couldn't get any weirder, a whole new set of questions appear in the wake of Christ's bodily resurrection. Will there be eating and drinking in heaven? Will there be work in heaven? Will we play together or make music together in heaven? Will we be married in heaven? Jesus' bodily resurrection pretends that we too will one day be bodily raised. But to what end? What are resurrected bodies for? Here, I must confess, the Christian theological tradition is of two minds. On the one hand, there are some, including St. Augustine, for whom the life to come will be a life of utter repose. We will rest in peace. We will no longer work or play. The beatific vision will put an end to all labor and all activity besides the direct contemplation of God. It sounds wonderful, I suppose, but it always leaves me wondering, what will be the point of having bodies in the next life? On the other hand, there are some in the Christian theological tradition, Gregory of Nyssa comes to mind, who are not as certain that all activity will cease in the life to come. The future will not be one of utter repose. What should we make of this debate? The good news is that whichever side you join, you will be in good company. You can join Team Augustine or Team Nyssa. I myself lean toward Team Nyssa, a team that also includes Jonathan Edwards. Speaking of the future, Edwards could say, the redeemed will indeed enjoy other things. They will enjoy the angels, and they will enjoy one another. But that which they shall enjoy in the angels, or each other, or in anything else whatsoever, that will yield then delight and happiness will be what will be seen of God in them. Perhaps the most important question when it comes to Christ's resurrection is not, did it happen? But what is going to happen next? What does Christ's resurrection pretend about the future? We need to raise and answer such questions so that we can begin living toward it now in the way that we live together. Even St. Augustine can get on board here, believing as he did that this life is preparatory for the life to come. So how might our thinking about Christ's body and about our future resurrected bodies affect how we live now? The great 19th century Methodist theologian William Burke Pope believed that in the life to come, we will continue to inhabit social roles and to work. He described the future in terms of an economy of service, a world in which we will all serve one another and find joy in various forms of work together. And that means that we should probably think about how we share in our work together now. How we serve one another through our various occupations. It's a vision of the future that brings to mind the words from the Psalter that we heard earlier. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us. And prosper for us the work of our hands. Oh prosper the work of our hands. If I were to extend this vision, I would say that if there is work in heaven, it will be joyful, shared work, and no vocation will be more important than any other. The plumber and the professor will occupy the same place in the kingdom. We will all be joyful servants of God and of one another. There will not be a trace Of self-importance for we will all know that we are there that we have any role whatsoever only because of the gracious invitation of the King if this is even close to correct then we should strive to carry out our vocations now in a manner that is in keeping with how we will carry them out in the future to do this we may need to repent for those times When we failed to see, to appreciate, to treat a fellow worker in the kingdom as our brother and sister in Christ. What are resurrected bodies for? Will we have jobs in heaven? I honestly do not know. What I do know is that I resonate strongly with Edwards when he says that we will enjoy one another in heaven and I suspect that most of you do as well when we think of heaven we instinctively think of reunion with our loved ones of seeing them again of being together around the Lord's table we may take it a step further and imagine reunion with all the saints who have gone before us my old teacher the late Billy Abraham liked to think of heaven this way He often said that in heaven, we would have the best theological seminars imaginable because we would finally get to talk with Augustine and with Nyssa and with Wesley. But how does this thinking, this way of thinking, uh, this thinking that we will enjoy one another's fellowship in the kingdom, affect how we live together now? In this morning's Gospel reading, the Lord commands us to abide in Him, but He also calls us to love one another. Our union with Christ does not spell an end to our relationships with one another. It transforms them. We are never simply joined to Christ. We are members of Christ's body. And we belong to one another in Christ, who is the head of the body. And as our head, he calls us to love one another. It's easy enough to imagine a future in which we will enjoy fellowship with one another in the presence of our Lord. But to take such a vision seriously, we must repent for the ways in which we so often fail to live towards such a vision now in this life. We must repent for the ways in which we fail to love the very ones with whom we hope to spend eternity in blissful fellowship with our risen Lord. I know of no one who captures this better than the Kentucky farmer theologian Wendell Berry, as we prepare to gather at the table this morning, I'd like to leave you with Berry's vision of heaven, a vision that calls us to repent for failing to heed our Lord's command to love one another. O saints, if I am even eligible for this prayer though less than worthy of this dear desire, and if your prayers have influence in heaven, let my place there be lower than your own. I know how you longed here where you lived as exiles for the presence of the essential being and maker and knower of all things. But because of my unruliness, For some erring virtue in me never rightly schooled, some error clear and dear, my life has not taught me your desire for flight, dismattered, pure, and free. I long instead for the heaven of creatures, of seasons, of day and night. Heaven enough for me would be this world as I know it, but redeemed of our abuse of it and one another. It would be the heaven of knowing again. There is no marrying in heaven, and I submit. Even so, I would like to know my wife again, both of us young again, and I remembering always how I loved her when she was old. I would like to know my children again, all my family, all my dear loved ones, to see, to hear, to hold more carefully than before, to study them lingeringly as one studies old verses, committing them to heart forever. I would like again to know my friends, my old companions, men and women, horses and dogs, in all the ages of our lives, here in this place that I have watched over all my life in all its moods and seasons, I will be leaving how many beauties overlooked. A painful heaven this would be, for I would know by it how far I have fallen short. I have not paid enough attention. I have not been grateful enough And yet this pain would be the measure of my love. In eternities once and now, pain would place me surely in the heaven of my earthly love.